You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 38 of season 12 for 2018-1609. In today's episode, I want to talk about two things. One is Fossil, which I've talked about before. I want to check in with it. I want to talk about how Fossil is going now that I've kind of been living in it for a little while. And then I want to talk about Lutris, a gaming interface for Linux. I guess we could call it an interface. We'll talk about it. Let's get started. And let's start with Lutris because it's a pretty straightforward topic. It's an application. It is, I guess, a gaming library manager, maybe. Maybe that's what the the generic term would be. I don't really know that there is a generic term, but Lutris is one of them. So the Lutris client, the thing that you download and install onto your computer, is an open source client, and it is a window full of icons representing the games on your system. If the games don't pop up in Lutris, but are on your system, you can add them yourself. And that's what Lutris is. It, 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 it's a hard sell, because it, unless you're a, a serious gamer, I guess, it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And yet, it's kind of handy. I don't know why it's handy. I think because this is the post-Steam world. If you've never used Steam, and you may not have, I hadn't, I, I never had used it until about two years ago, probably, maybe three now, I don't know. But uh, before I used it, I, I could never really understand what it was. People would keep telling me, well, it's like iTunes for games, which cleared nothing up for me at all, because I'm not really sure what iTunes is. I mean, I do know what iTunes is, but but I, I didn't, I, I'm not sure why it exists. And I'm, I'm not, you know, Lately, I've even wondered if people even use that anymore, and I think people do, but but it's it's really difficult for me to conceptualize. Steam, I guess a lot of people use it, and and it's pretty popular, and it has, I, 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 I gather, it has made, it has created the expectation that, okay, well, if I have 10 games installed on my system, which I know some of you are laughing right now at 10 games, if I have 10 games installed on my system, I want one place to go so that I can look through them. It's kind of the Amarok theory, you know, rediscover your music. It's kind of it's kind of rediscover your game. So your your games. So you you go to this one window and you see all of your games right there in one window. Now I I can hear you asking because I ask this myself often. Why don't I just open up Dolphin and go to Applications colon and then go to games, and there's all of my .desktop games, or you know my my .desktop files rendered as icons with the name of the game right next to it, and I can click on any one of those games, and it will launch for me, and I can play the game. One one stop shop, works like a charm. So why why would I not use that? Why would I use Lutris instead? It, it's there's really it's it's a hard sell. It it is I I think it is exclusively because of the expectation that Steam has created that there ought to be an application for you to to launch and and be presented with all the games that that you have. Now Steam falls down on one pla- a couple of places. One is that it's not open source. It's kind of troublesome for a lot of people. Two is that it has uh, a level of a, a layer of DRM, you know, sort of intrinsic to the games within Steam. Now there is a there is the opportunity to add 
external games to your Steam client. So you launch Steam, and there's all of the games that you've purchased through the Steam game store, and you can see all your games, and it's got all this integration. Like, if you've if you've earned certain achievements in a game, you get little icons, little badges, that, that are, you know, like little gold stickers, essentially, except they're usually designed to be, a, you know, within the theme of the game. You get these little stickers, gold stickers on your screen that, that, that say, yes, you have played, you've played this game and you have defeated, you know, the first boss. Oh, and now you've defeated the second boss. And it tells you how, how many hours you've spent playing the game and all the, all this other stuff. And, and if you're shopping for a new game, you get lots of, uh, you, you can see what other people thought of the game. You can get, a, you know, sort of user feedback or whatever, like user ratings and reviews and that sort of thing. So you get an idea of whether whether that game has impressed a lot of people or frustrated a lot of people. So there's there's a lot there in Steam and a lot of that is not present in Lutris at all. And I don't know if that's something that they're planning on including at some point, but what Lutris is within all of that, you know, that big sort of thing that Steam has set up as an expectation, what Lutris is is an array of icons or of banners really. There there's because again, because of Steam, I think people have a certain expectation that games on your computer, you know, in a in a game library, a digital game library, ought to be represented by a banner graphic, a 460 pixel by 215 little banner, sort of a, a splash page almost for that game or a splash icon for that game. So it's it's larger than a system icon, you know, 48 by 48 or or 128 by 100 whatever. It's 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 kind of a, a large banner that represents that game. And and that kind of look is I think again just kind of an expectation of well, I'm going to go look at my gaming library now and that's kind of what you have been trained to expect. So you open up Lutris, you see all your banners, you see the names under them and then you can click on them to launch them. That's it. That's the that's Lutris. I I realize that this does not sound like a killer app to you yet. And and I and I guess maybe it's not a killer app, but it's something I think that people appreciate. So so as puzzling as it may be to you or me as maybe non-serious, you know, non, I, I guess non-gamer. I, I mean, I, I can't keep calling myself a non-gamer because I, I've got games on my computer. I've got books that are games, you know, so I, I, I shouldn't do that. So, but I'm not a serious computer gamer. I'm, I'm really not. So to you and I, if you're a, not a very serious computer gamer, th- this may not seem like a big deal, but to a gaming enthusiast, it's it's actually quite handy because what what ends up happening in the real world, and this is kind of what Steam I I feel tries to mitigate with their ability to add external games to your Steam library, as if though it it is part of your you know it's part of your library, so you can bring it into Steam. Well, what Lutris does is throw out the idea that there is anything but your library. So in other words, with Steam, you, you open up Steam, and there's your Steam library. Oh, and now you can add other stuff in there. You open up Lutris, and there's your library. And you can aggregate all of your games into Lutris. So in theory, or... or so what happens is, whether this is all automatic, automated, or, or a manual process, I will get into in a moment. But what happens is that you open up Lutris... And you realize that you have to sign in. 
Sign in to what? Well, that's where their website comes into play. So if you go to Lutris.net, uh, you discover that they have sort of a platform online as, as well as their desktop client that you use when you download Lutris. Lutris is the open gaming platform for Linux. It helps you install and manage your games in a unified interface. Their goal is to support every game that runs on Linux, from native Windows games over Wine to emulators and browser games. So that's, that's their self-stated goal. That was just a, a quote right from their front page. And if you go to their site, you can sign up with them. It's, they, they don't require a whole lot of information, like an email that you can then email back from to verify your account, and a name of some kind. So then you can click on Games, the Games tab, on their website once you're signed in, and search through any number of games. So here's one uh, called Blasphemer. It's an open-source uh, first-person shooter for the Heretic engine. Um, Metal-inspired dark fantasy. So if you uh, want to install that onto your local, well, onto your local computer and, and into your Lutris library, they have an install button on this page. The install button, and you can, if you uh, click on the, the, if you sort of do the disclosure triangle to the right of the install button, you can even, you can look at the installer. So you can, I, I don't really, they're, in, well, I'll, I'll get into the details in a moment. First, I'm just trying to walk through the, the standard feature. So you can look at the installer if you want. It's a pretty simple thing. kind of shows you what it's going to do you know, when you tell it to install, so check that out, and then you can just click install, and the game downloads, the, well, your browser knows, hopefully, to install these kinds of files in Lutris, Lutris launches the little install script, or, or the, the install screen, and you can click through, and it does whatever it needs to do to install that application. Now, that's an open, a free and open source game that's available for download on, you know, from the internet without any kind of interaction with anything. And that usually, in my experience, happens pretty, pretty flawlessly. That just kind of works. And I think, you know, again, it's, it's all open source. I mean, we don't have to analyze this that much to understand why it's a smooth experience, right? Everything's open. There, there's no, there, there are no blockades set up between you and your target. So that works. It gets a little bit stranger when you go to their website to install other things, other games. So you might think, well, I bought this this one game uh, from Humble Bundle, and I want to install it into Lutris now. So you, you, you find that game on, on the website, you click install, and generally it, it seems to ask you where the installer file from Humble Bundle is. So where's this? Where's the thing that you downloaded already from Humble Bundle? You pointed at that, and generally it is able to then unarchive it and pl place it in the correct location and 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 add it to your Lutris library. That usually happens pretty well. It gets it gets more complex the the more the the, the more you try. You know, like like. Humble Bundle might work fine, and then something from GOG.com, maybe not so well, because maybe there was an update, so the file isn't exactly what it had expected, maybe. I don't know, the file names maybe get mixed up, I'm not sure. Um, and then something from Steam, well, then it launches Steam, because then you have to sign into your Steam account, and then it, it locates the that game executable in the Steam 
uh, files, you know, in the in that sort of .steam subdirectory where it keeps all of its games. So it 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 can be very complex, and I I frankly think it's pretty amazing the way that Lutris does handle what it does handle. That said, there are things that it has trouble with, and in those cases, you might have to do a manual install. Now, the manual install, they do really well. It took me a little while. It took me longer than I'd like to admit to figure out the manual install process, and I think that's because I was trying to outthink it. You know, I, I kept thinking, well, I, I want to point it to this file, but what it's really asking for is something completely different. Or I would try to to create an installer in a certain location when the location has already been set. The, the location is something that you set in your Lutris uh, preferences, in your settings, separately. You do that in advance. Now, if you don't, it defaults to, I think, tilde slash games, plural with a capital G. I very rarely uh, name directories in plural. Because then there's that question of, is it singular or is it plural? I don't remember what I named it. So I just do everything singular, generally speaking. I, sometimes I forget, but that's my tendency. So And, and I very rarely use uh, capital letters in my directory. So I just, so tilde slash game is my default directory for games. But it's not the default for Lutra. So you set that differently, and then everything gets moved to your game, your tilde slash game, or whatever you set it to, directory. So if you try to outthink it too much and try to make it too manual, then you're doing yourself and Lutris a disservice. So that it's kind of one of those things where set it up first and then just follow the prompts. Or do it manually and just fill in the blanks. Because the manual form uh, there in Lutris, you, you just all you do is you click a little plus symbol at the top of the thing and you, you enter the game info, so the name of the game and then which runner you want to use to launch that game. Now that's something that we'll get into in a moment, because that's kind of, um, that's a whole other thing. That It's kind of an important other thing, and, and probably, probably arguably one of the, the real reasons to use Lutris, and I'll, but I'll get into that in a moment. So uh, once you do that, you, you're pretty much set up. Well, you go to Game Info, uh, defines the runner and the name of the game, then you go to Game Options, and you select the actual executable that you want it to, to launch when you when you launch a game. Th that's basically it. Um, so I'll get out of that. So Lutris has... It, it's very, very generic. It, it doesn't care where a game comes from as long as there... It doesn't even care that it's a game. As long as there's something to execute when you double-click a game banner it's happy to put it into the Lutris library for you. And once again, like if you overthink this from a kind of a pragmatic point of view, it falls apart because you just think, well, why wouldn't I just make myself a .desktop file for that game? And it does the exact same thing. And you're absolutely right. Like Lutris isn't adding that much in terms of technology. You're not really getting a whole lot for the, the much bang for your buck, as it were, technologically in Lutris. You are getting something that's already... It, it already exists on a Linux computer. You've got your .desktop files to create the icon and the launcher. And in that .desktop file, you can launch... You, you can use anything you want to launch a game. doesn't matter if it's uh, some kind of call to a Steam thing or some call to just a direct executable or to a startup script. It doesn't matter. You can do it. Simple as that. 
so what you're getting with Lutris is not the the technology and the the advanced way that it views games or whatever. It's it's simply the convenience and and comfort of here's my game library in a fairly attractive you know kind of industry industry expectation uh, format with all the pretty banners that come you know that, that are sort of I guess the the gamer's replacement for the the box art. You've got your 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 banners so. That's what you're getting, but but on top of all of that, so as now now that I've sort of torn it back down, there is something that Lutris I think adds that is that's that's probably worth the price of admission. Depends on on your gaming style and all that other good stuff, but but to me this was something that that was quite nice, and that is that you can manage r your runners. So the runners again, that's the the back end for for whatever game it is that you are going to play. Lutris assumes out of the box as it were, it assumes that everything is is run on Linux. That's that's the runner for for most of the, you know, by by default that's the runner. So when you when you add a game, it's assuming it's a Linux game that will launch on your system and so you point it to that that executable and it uses Linux as the runner and that's it. It's a game that gets launched. But that's of course if you're if you're a true gamer or you like to pretend that you're one sometimes then you probably have a lot more than that for instance you probably have ROMs for games that came out on uh Super NES and uh Sega Genesis or whatever your favorite you know your preferred platform was or or the one that your parents would buy you uh or Game Boy Game Boy Advance whatever uh th so you need emulators to run those ROMs right uh, or maybe you have some wine games, or maybe you have some uh, scum VM games. Who knows what you have access to? DOSBox, that's another one, right? So in in the manage runners options for Lutris, it, it lists, it's got to be at least, I, I have no sense, but I mean, it's got to be at least 30 different backends that you could potentially use to play any given game. It's really, really impressive. And what's even cooler is that it's a one-click install. So they, they list the emulator that, yeah, granted, you could probably just install it or something like it on your, you know, from your repository anyway, and it would work just as well. You'd never have to give it a second thought. It would just work. It's easy. Well, for this, it's got its own... It, it, it'll install it into the little Lutris, you know, subdirectory file system for you, and it will launch it from there, and everything's kind of self-contained. It's it's arbitrary that it's self-contained. It doesn't really matter. It could just as easily put it into your user slash bin. And yet, it just makes it so sort of transparent and easy, and it kind of spells it out for you. You don't have to go looking for an emulator. They're just well, you do, but they're all here. They're they're right here in Lutris. They're they're listed for you. For instance, I never knew something called Desmumi. Desmumi. Uh, existed, and yet there it is. It's a Nintendo DS emulator. I didn't even know that Nintendo DS had an emulator. I mean, I'm naive, I guess, but but I never really thought about it. I didn't know DS games would play on a computer. I just thought you had to have a Nintendo DS for that. I never knew about Lib Retro. I never, well, I might have known about Lib Retro, Retro but Mednothen I never knew about. Mednothen is an NES, Game Boy and Game Boy Advance, PC Engine support, supported platforms, Atari Lynx, Bandai Wonderswan. I like all all these different uh, systems like that was two of them i mean there there it's it's a big big list so you install those things 
And then you go back to Lutris and add your ROM games, your, your ROM images uh, to Lutris, which of course you've extracted from the ROM legally, that you legally purchased from some store somewhere. And and then you can play, you know, all your favorite games. Tomb Raider Legends and Yoshi's Island uh, World 2 and, and, you know, whatever else is your Shadowrun. Uh, what, um, what, what's the other good one? Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. So, yeah, you can do all kinds of cool things, and it's super easy and, and fairly transparent. Is it worth it? Yeah, I think it's worth it. It's, it's actually quite nice. Um, it, it's, it, it is, in a weird way, it's almost like a focus group for your gaming. It, it, I don't know if it's a must-have application by any means, and, and I'm not even sure that, that this, this construct, I'm not even sure will last. Like, we don't know. Steam's a big deal right now. People, people are used to this gaming library in a certain format. Is that going to last? I, I have no idea. It may not, you know, it might go the way of iTunes. And I'm, I'm just saying iTunes because I'm assuming iTunes is going to die any day now. We don't know. We don't know how long this will last. We don't know how long this will be relevant, in other words. Is it a killer feature? No, it's not. It, it is something that you, all of this stuff that you, you can do on your own file system in other ways. Does this make it just a little bit easier? Yeah, it does. And I think that's where it gets you. If you're a, really, if you're a, if you're someone who, like me, likes to play a little bit of gaming every now and again, doesn't want to spend a whole lot of effort making it happen, Lutris actually is quite nice for that. It'll get you all your games in one window. You can look through your games. You can find one that you want to play for 15 minutes till you get too bored to continue, and and it makes it very easy. And I, I, I'm assuming that's the goal. I mean, that is what... I mean, nobody wants to spend a whole lot of time on setting up for their hobby. What they want to do is their hobby. So if gaming is your hobby, Lutris is quite a nice little entryway to getting into your... getting to work on your hobby. It, it does require some setup, and some of the things that it claims to do it doesn't seem to necessarily work 100%. I've tried importing games from places or syncing my library, and it doesn't seem to really work the way that I would expect. I'm not sure what I'm syncing to. I thought that the Lutris.net account was going to be uh, a, 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 an online li you know, listing of the games that I claim to have, and therefore I would have assumed that if I had Lutris on my desktop, then when I went over to my laptop and I said sync, with with Lutris, that, that that all the games that I had configured on my desktop would then appear on my laptop. If not the actual executables, then at least the listing of them. And that hasn't seemed to happen yet, so I'm not sure if I'm doing something wrong or if I'm misunderstanding the point. I haven't really looked that far into it, because honestly, it's it's not really that big of a deal to me. This is more of something that I'm just kind of messing around with. This is not a This is not a must-have for me. But I'm really enjoying having it. It really is making a lot of the games that I kind of might have squirreled away somewhere a lot more accessible to me just because they're right there. I can launch a thing, and there are the games. And they look so appealing because that art is so attractive. I really want to click on, on that one game that I'd been meaning to play but never got around to it. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's oddly nice. Um, it's just one of those things that I, I, guess, I guess at the, 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 
the what you're detecting in my in my hesitation is my is my my guilt over not playing more video games. It really is what it is. I, I want to play video games more often than I do. Uh, no, I, I want to want to play video games more often than I do, and and eventually maybe I'll get there. But but right now I just don't have the time for it still, and so I don't play that many games. And Lutris is my 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 attempt to to inspire myself to play some games a little bit more maybe. Um, and I'm not sure if that's going to work out for me, but heck, Lutris itself is a neat little application, and if you don't really have any good reason to run the Steam client, then maybe you'll find Lutris appealing. It's worth a shot, anyway. It's free, it's open source, it's a work in progress, they're still developing, it's been around since, I don't know, 2013, so it's it's been around a while, um, but there are aspects to it that I feel probably are going to be, you know, they're, I, I feel like they're probably not exactly where they want it to be, just based on what they're saying on their website. So um, I'm assuming that it'll get there eventually. But but all in all, I do feel I feel I feel like they've I think they've hit their mark. I think that Lutris is a really appealing little front end for your games. If that's what you're looking for, you ought to try it out. Maybe next week I'll take a look at Itch. Itch is another kind of similar conceptually to uh, Lutris and Steam. Probably worth talking about, actually, because there's a lot of, of interesting stuff going on on Itch. So maybe I'll, I'll talk about that next time. For now, though, you know, and I know, it's time for coffee. coffee is version control. So Fossil, as I've mentioned before, I've, I've kind of been trying out a little bit here and there because a friend of mine, Cobra 2, has bugged me about it for the past couple of years, and so finally I just decided, yeah, it's time to do this. So I'm trying it out on two different projects. One is a, a fairly, uh, I, I guess I'd say, unimportant or, or non-critical. I think that's probably more, more, more accurate. A non-critical project. And the other one is, I would say, critical. I mean, it's a paid gig. It's something that I'm doing. If, if data loss occurs, it would cause problems for me. So I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I have both of these two projects in separate fossil repositories, and I've been using Fossil anytime I work on them. What occurred to me the other day as I was doing research on, on trying to figure out how to do something that, you know, if, if you'd asked me to do this on Git, it would have been trivial for me. And doing the same thing on Fossil, what, you know, drove me to, to about an hour of kind of a diversion of, well, how do I do this on Fossil? Or, or rather, how do I do this correctly on Fossil? I was doing the thing intuitively, the way that Fossil appeared to want me to do it. I was just not 100% confident that that it was happening, that what, what I thought was happening was actually being carried out. So I, I, I had to do research to make sure that I wasn't missing some step and Fossil just wasn't picking up on what I was trying to do, so it wasn't warning me that, hey, you didn't just do what you think you did. So that's a lot of vague stuff, but and I'm going to get into exactly what that was. But but first, I kind of want to talk about 
this idea, the feeling that one gets when one is trying to learn a new software. Because that's a hot topic, you know? Like, especially as an open-source free software enthusiast, we are often ending up telling people, you should try this thing. This thing that is different to you, you should go learn that. It will, it will make that problem that you are describing, it will make it go away. You know, the fact that your server is arbitrarily limiting how many SQL threads you can have on that thing, well, if you switch to a Linux server, that will go away. Simple as that. That's your answer. There you go. Or at least switch to MySQL. You know, it's it's just, or MariaDB, rather. You know, you, these these little suggestions that we make, and people, you can almost, you know, sense the tension in the air. You know, you can see them recoil. It's, 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 it's because we are suggesting change, and people don't like change. I mean, interestingly, nerds famously are supposed to not like change. I mean, that, isn't that one of the sort of the cliches that nerds don't like change? You can't change things on them, and that's why they're still using 20-year-old, 40-year-old operating systems or whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'm making that, that cliche up. I feel like that's something I've heard, though. But anyway, that's n neither here nor there. Point is that, that there's this feeling of that you get when you're learning something new and it's kind of like this it's very exciting it's an emotional roller coaster right half of the time it's very cool it's like you're on top of the world that things are that things are different and oh my gosh they're so much better and then you're on the other side of that and you're thinking oh my gosh i, I don't think this is going to work out and i can't figure out how to do this simple thing if i was doing it on my old solution my old platform it would it would have only taken me 30 seconds and i can't do it and then you figure it out and you realize oh my gosh this is so much simpler because what used to take me 30 minutes 30 seconds on my old thing is only taking me 10 seconds now so yeah sure i spent an hour researching but but now you know after 100 times of doing this i'll have saved myself so much time it's it's great that i've figured this out so and it just keeps going on and on like that don't check my math on that but yeah, it, it just keeps going, and it's it's a very sort of tumultuous experience, and that I think a lot of people do, do not like. That's the thing that when we say, hey, you should just try this this open source thing, the thing that they are recoiling at is I don't want to go through that level of elation mixed with disappointment, mixed with elation, mixed with fear. Yeah, I just I don't want to have to experience that. Or, or possibly maybe they just don't want to experience the frustration. You know, maybe some people don't even see that learning process as a roller coaster. Maybe they just see it as a big black pit of frustration, of time spent and invested that in the end, maybe it won't even pay off. Maybe we'll switch right back to the old thing because, oh, turns out this didn't do it. Huh, what do you know? So that, that, that could be part of the problem, too. And I and I guess broadly what what I am saying I guess is that in having this experience of 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 knowing Git quite well but using Fossil willfully and and experiencing the frustration and the thrill of this new software I guess I feel in a way I'm I'm getting in touch with something that well well frankly that I knew that I had but other people keep telling me that I don't and I know I've probably mentioned this on this show before and I I'm not sure how many of you my dear listeners experience this but but I I come up against people who who insist to me that I don't understand what it's like to have to learn something new because I guess I don't have to learn stuff or something. I'm not really sure. They don't really usually explain it all that well. But 
it, 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 it appears from what people tell me, apparently it is different for me because of reasons that, you know, and, and it's just, I don't understand what it's like to have to change technology or to learn something new because, and maybe what they're saying, maybe the unspoken thing rather that they mean is maybe they are detecting, well, you like learning new stuff. So the pain is different for you. Or maybe they they really do think that I just don't have to learn stuff. Maybe they believe, and I have heard this from people, not about me, about other, you know, people, um, from people about other people, uh, that that yeah, some some people just don't have to learn stuff on computers. They already know it, and and so there's this weird sort of almost belief, I guess, that almost you you don't yeah. Once you've learned, once you've reached a certain point on computing. That that change does not affect you, and you know what? Maybe let's let's take a different angle because right now I'm kind of thinking of it as well. You just don't understand me. What's your problem? So let, let's let's look at it a different angle and say, well, maybe what they're detecting there is the methodical way that many geeks do approach change. Not not all geeks. Again, we're a pretty diverse group, I would say, um, but but me at least from my point of view. I, I do believe that I generally look at something new in in a kind of yeah I guess in a methodical way I, I look at it I determine what needs to occur for me to start using that new application and then once I've gotten up to you know the basic use case success then okay what needs to happen now for me to 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 use it more broadly or to to keep myself from getting s stuck uh, when some when some problem occurs, you know, you you think of all these different the the, the different paths, and you kind of you map out a, a learning plan for yourself, and and you emerge from the other side, having learned something new, and and then you certainly within the open source community, I find it's pretty common for people to then want to share how that how that how they figured it out, you know, or, or what they figured out. And in that spirit, actually, I'm going to share with you what I figured out about Fossil. Um, but I did want to kind of just do a commentary there, as I've done, on, on maybe what people think about learning new stuff and why a lot of geeks don't seem to mind learning new stuff. So I'm going to um, make a new folder here. Just to demonstrate, I want to demonstrate something—a difference between fossil and Git—and and it's not to necessarily to teach you about fossil. Actually, it's it's really more, although it is kind of interesting. But anyway, it's it's more. I want to highlight something that I think a lot of us try to express, but but struggle to find examples of. So I've made a new directory. I'm going to go into it. I'm going to make one directory called Gitder, and I'm going to make another one called Fossilder. Okay, so in gitdir, if I I'm gonna um, git init. Now there's a git repository in gitdir. Great. So now I'm gonna just echo the word foo into um, text.txt. So there's a file now in my git directory called text.txt. It contains the word foo. Great. So I will do a git add of text.txt. So now it's been added to my staging area. In fact, if I do a git status now, 
I see that there's a new file in existence. It's called text.txt. So now I'll do a git commit dash m new file added. And now if I do a git status, nothing's to, nothing's here to commit. Everything's clean. The working tree is clean. So that's that's the process for a git add and a, a, a git commit. And that's fine. So now let's say that I echo bar into text.txt. So now txt uh, text.txt contains two words, foo and bar. And if I do a git status now, it tells me that the file has been modified. Now if if I want to preserve those modifications, here's what I do. I do a git add txt.txt uh, text.txt and this is the significant part. So I git add that I do a git status, and it will tell me that it's been modified, but that it's in staging. And now I will do a git commit, uh, changed file, and that those are the things that I do. Okay, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, in real life, I'd probably push push it to somewhere. I'd do a git push, you know, remote, blah blah blah, wherever it would would go to. I don't, I'm not pushing it to anywhere right now, so that's fine. Okay, so now we're going to go over to to fossilder, and we're going to do the same thing. So we're going to do fossil init. Oh, and it tells me, no, you can't do it that way. You have to do a repository name. So I'll do a GNU a GWO demo, the name of my fossil uh, repository. Then I'll do a fossil open GWO demo. So now it's open. And now I'll do the same, really just run the same exact command. I'm going to echo foo into text.txt. I'll do a cat just to make sure that it worked. Yes, it worked. And now I'm going to do a fossil add txt.txt.txt. And it tells me, yes, you've added text.txt. And now I'll do a fossil commit dash m added file. All right, and it tells me there's a new version. And it gives me a big long hash to represent that new version. Here's where things get a little bit different from, from fossil and, and git. So in fossil, I've got this file text.txt with the word foo in it. So if I do something crazy, like trash text.txt, now if I do a list, I've got nothing in my repository. So I'll do a fossil um, revert text.txt. You could also do a fossil undo, I think, but I'm going to, uh, I'll just do that. Yeah, in fact, it says fossil undo is available. So now I'll do a cat of txt.txt. So there's foo is in that file. So no data has been lost, right? Because I added it and I committed it in fossil. Everything's fine. That's that's pretty much, that's, that's what I would expect. So now I'm going to do an echo of bar into text.txt. And now I've got two words in text.txt, foo and bar. So now at this point, if I trashed text.txt, certainly I would expect if I did a fossil revert text.txt and then catted text.txt, sure enough, I've lost that data. That is expected. That that to me makes perfect sense. So I'm gonna I'm gonna echo bar back into it. Echo bar redirect redirect text.txt. I'll cat it again, foo and bar exist. So now I'll do a fossil status and it tells me, okay text.txt has been edited. So it's not the same as it was before. It has been edited. Now, if I do a fossil add text.txt, remember, that's what I would have done in git because I've got a changed file now. So I should, I should add that file so that I can then commit that file, right? If I do that, it tells me it has skipped text.txt. 
So if I do a fossil status, it once again tells me text.txt has been edited. Well, I know it's been edited. I want to add it so that I can then commit it. Nope, skipped. So this this took me, really, this, is, this caused me a lot of concern because every single time that I changed a file, I felt like fossil was going to just throw aside my changes. And luckily, I have my thumb drive that I work off of, as you probably know if you've heard previous episodes, and that thing gets backed up automatically whenever I plug it into my desktop or my laptop. So I wasn't too concerned about this in the in the larger scheme of things because I, I knew that all my files were being backed up anyway uh, on my computer. So I, I'm not really concerned about what Fossil was doing. But, I mean, if you're trying to learn Fossil, you kind of do want to, at some point, you have to sit down and think, okay, well, I'm going to try to understand this thing, and this just isn't making any sense. Why is it insisting on skipping something that I've changed? Well, it turns out that if I just do a fossil commit-m uh, updated text file, it gives me a new version, a new hash version, and then if I do a git status, everything's fine. Everything has been committed. There's no no outstanding changes. Everything's perfectly fine. Can we prove that? Well, yes, we can. So if we if we trash text.txt, everything's empty again, nothing in my repository. So now we'll do a fossil revert, and I know I could do fossil undo, but undo that term to me, it, it doesn't sound as convincing as revert. So fossil revert text.txt, it says, again, you could use fossil for uh, fossil undo for this. And then I'll do a cat of t text.txt, and sure enough, there are two words, foo and bar. So in other words, the thing that I edited, you don't have to add it again. And that, to me, it, it took me, well, months. Months I've been working on this, and I've, I've always, it's bugged me for months, and I never really looked into it until today because I had a little bit of time and uh, the project was in a good place, so I thought, I'm going to really look at this. Turns out that, yeah, my my fossil repository is uh, completely, it's it's um, it's not corrupt, it's not, it's not incomplete, it is fine, and just because things are marked as edited does not, it is not the same in Git as modified, I mean, it means basically the same thing, right? The, the data is no longer the same in these two files. But in Fossil, because you marked it as a file that Fossil should track, Fossil continues to track it. And if you do a Fossil commit, then they're auto-added, if, if you have to think of it in Git terms. It, it, it adds itself to staging and commits it. None of those terms are correct in Fossil world. That's not... It doesn't add anything to a staging area. Or maybe it does. Maybe you could argue that it does. But from what I've understood, it really doesn't. So that's a, a a fundamental difference in the way that Git and Fossil work. And and it's so different that there's no direct translation. And and I think that's that's a, a great example, I think, of, of of the way that I try to express to people, either as a warning or as an encouragement. Look, if you try Linux, it can be am it will be amazing but it it can be frustrate a frustrating experience as well because you are going to try to find analogies from what you are used to to what linux is offering you and sometimes there's just not going to be a direct path from here to there and for me knowing that the incantation is git add some modified file git commit some comment 
and get push. That's the that's the way that it is done. And so fossil for fossil to to try to communicate to me, and it's very intuitive. It has been in you know compared to Git, I would say fossil is brilliantly intuitive. Although I'm biased because I as 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 much of a problem it is that I'm bringing with me all of this experience from Git to Fossil, it's also a benefit because at least I know what the heck I'm I'm trying to do in some way, even if I'm going about it in this over-complex way. So through no fault of Fossil, it has simplified this process to such a degree that it has confused me. So I've Fossil added a file once, long ago, and then every time I edit it, all I have to do is do a Fossil commit and everything is committed, and it's it's just as easy and as as sublime as that. And in fact, it even get pu- it, it even gets pushed. So for my for one of the projects that I'm trying fossil on, I I do have a an, an I've got an online repository that my commits get pushed in Git terminology. They get pushed to that place. In fossil terminology, all I'm doing is I'm doing a fossil commit with a message, and I am doing you know, in, in Git terms, I'm doing the add, I'm doing the commit, and the push with literally one command. Is that scary? Yeah, it's pretty scary. I like explicit commands, you know? I like to I like to tell my computer what exactly I want it to do. And if I have to spell that out, that's fine. I'm happy to do that. If I want to script it later myself, I can. But initially, I want to have the the security of knowing that that we have an understanding here. I want you to add this file and commit it and push it. Those are three separate actions in my mind. But I don't know. Are they? I mean, maybe they're not. And and probably SVN people probably know this too. You know, going from SVN to Git, I'm sure there was a big a big shift in kind of how you even approach version control in the first place. And that's what I'm that's what I'm experiencing with Fossil. And it's a crazy, crazy experience. One that, that frankly, I didn't know I would ever have again. In a in a weird way. I really wasn't really sure if there was if there was anything that was gonna that that would that would cause my brain to have to shift quite that much i mean even i mean there are you know there are interesting audio applications out there like really interesting synthesizers and and audio workstations and stuff like that but i i feel like at, at a certain point you do you you kind of start to you, you reach a a point where you've kind of plateaued and you're kind of like well okay this is a little bit different this, a little bit different interface, but I get it. I get what's going on here. And, and and this one, this get to fossil, fossil to get thing, has really caused my my brain to kind of have to readjust a bunch of different connections, you know, and just really, really think about things differently. And I, and I, I, I guess I value that experience because it, 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 it kind of reminds me what, what it is to tell someone to use something different. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. It's asking for a big investment. Now, I'm not saying that that's too much to ask. I'm not even saying that I feel like I've been insensitive to that. It's just an opportunity to to be reminded of what that felt like. Because it's, it's been a long time. It was a long time since I switched from my old OS to Linux. Uh, as I keep realizing every day, it, like I look back at my start date on Linux, and it's just it's so long ago now. And I, it keeps... It, it it continually surprises me, and to be able to kind of create a a simile from from of that experience, kind of a a simulation of that experience now is is kind of cool. And I mean, there's also the side benefit of hey, 
I'm learning fossil. I'm learning something new. I'm I, I'm getting a new tool in my toolkit. I'm 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 diversifying the things that I can be dependent upon. You know, lots of there are lots of positives there in addition to just kind of the the theoretical musing over how your initial whatever your initial reference point was, you you carry that with you to to the next thing and sometimes that's such a problem. And I really do wish there was an easy off switch for that. I think a lot of people would benefit from that. You know, if we could just say, look, you're going to you're going to want to try to make this into the thing that you used to use. Don't do that. I wish there was a way to make that actually sink in because you can say that to people, and I've I've said basically that to uh, to people who have been switching to Linux. You know, I've 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 told them, look, view this as an opportunity to rethink how you compute. I mean, that's an exciting prospect, at least from my point of view, and it was an exciting prospect even back when I was switching, but it was also frustrating if you could just switch it off and just say, yeah, look, this is nothing like what what I've done before. I'm going to rediscover everything from the ground up. It's a chance to rebuild. That ought to be a really, really good thing. But it, it is a difficult thing, I guess, for humans to to wrap their mind around. But there you go. That's That's a little bit about the difference between Fossil and Git in a very kind of tangible, provable demonstrable way. Hope that was interesting. Uh, if you haven't tried Fossil, I encourage you to give it a go. It is interesting to try. And um, if you haven't tried Git, you should try that too. I've got a series on that on Hacker Public Radio. So until next time, thanks very much for listening, and thank you for all the emails that you guys randomly send me, or the comments that you that you shoot me over various forms of communications. I appreciate it. really enjoy um, talking to each and every one of you. And that is exactly what I'll do next time. listening to the GNU World Order AUGcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AUGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
matter, kid? Your sister ain't a vampire, is she? 